him to bless you that way, I would uh, seriously suggest doing that. Uh, let's see. Let me pray, pray before we get into this. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for everybody here. We thank you for everybody at home watching right now or who will watch later. We pray for your spirit to just light on all of us. That your presence would sort of envelop us and wrap around us like a giant quilt, a giant thick quilt, Father. That we would be reminded that you are here, that you love us, that you're protecting us, that you're guiding us. And that we just want to um, sink into that, to understand it, to be blessed by it so that we can be a blessing to others with it. So we pray that you would speak this morning in a way that only you can, not in the way that Jason can or anybody else in this room, but only in the way that your Holy Spirit can speak to us. So we ask that where we need conviction and where we need joy and encouragement, where we need a different outlook, that you would give us that, that you would adjust our souls, fine-tune us, to be absolutely just obedient children in your hands. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, If you haven't been with us, we've we've been in Philippians and we are rounding the corner to, uh, you know, to ending this book. Next week will be our last sermon. Uh, If you want to turn with me to chapter 4, I think it's page 803 uh, is the beginning of chapter 4 in your pew Bibles. And at home, if you want to turn there, to chapter 4 of Philippians, that would be helpful. And you can kind of follow along. I'm going to read it in pieces. But in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul restates again his affection and his call to his friends in Philippi by starting this way. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for. You know, it's just such great words he, he speaks to these people, right? My joy and crown. You know, isn't that a sweet, like, just very, very familiar way to address somebody, right? He says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now, you've got to understand that referencing all that he's said up until this point, uh, Paul reiterates again this idea of standing firm in the true gospel or standing firm in the mind of Christ. And that's his first of five sort of imperatives to this this morning that I think you'll you'll enjoy hearing about. Um, you know, this reminds me, I don't know if you know him, but I, I read a book by Watchman Nee. Isn't that a great name, Watchman? Watchman Nee, right? Uh, little tiny book, really thin, but, you know, some of these books that are just really, like, medium-packed, they're like little tiny books, but they're worth a read, man. And Watchman Nee wrote a book. He was a Chinese Christian who suffered a great deal for the gospel in China um, as a pastor and whatnot, and it was called Sit, Walk, Stand. And it was the it was the they it was the basis for the very first outlines of the first sermons I ever did at 21 years old. I was uh, at art school, and my um, my pastor came to visit me while I was in a painting class, and he sat next to my, me while he was painting. And I was telling, he's like, "What's God doing in you?" And I said, "I'm reading this book, Watch by Watchman Nee, Sit Walk Stand." And he's like, "Oh, it's great. Why don't you preach three weeks on that?" I'm like, "What?" <laughs> you know? And uh, he led me through it, and next thing you know, bang, I'm I'm doing this like kind of all the time. But um, just gave me that opportunity. It was really nice. But it was just really a good book, and it went. It goes through the book of Ephesians, uh, where Paul explains 
that we are securely seated in Christ in the heavenly realms, and then we, uh, we're to walk in Christ in our life, but we also are called to stand firm in Christ. And that last part being really standing uh, in, in, in what Jesus commands, what he teaches, what, you know, what the scriptures teach us, standing in unity for Christ, both as individuals and together as the church. So, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to sound political, but the clearest illustration we have before us today concerning a threat to unity, unity is um, where Paul, uh, where, which Paul addresses quite often in this letter, uh, is where we are as a country right now, right? I don't think anybody would uh, uh, deny that unity... Um, Unity is under threat in America, right? Unity is is found in shared ideals and thoughts and uh, values and beliefs and things like that. And never before have we as Americans felt such a disunity in our country or such a divide as we feel right now, uh, which won't end with the election, by the way. I'm sorry to say that. Everybody's like so hopeful that it's all going to end. But it's not because of necessarily who's in the office. It really is that we... We no longer have this two-party system with minor differences in non-essential matters where compromise can be made. That would be a healthy political system. It really would. There's been a vast worldview shift where foundational beliefs and values and underlying views of reality have changed. And there's a divide in our country, I think, a great deal of that. Not necessarily a divide in political camps, but just a divide in how we view reality. And um, I think when people start to understand that, there's going to be a ton of books written on that in the next decade, right? So how we view human life and rights and humanity as a whole have morphed, not only in America, but in the Western world. What's good and right is altogether being redefined. So no longer do people see America in a certain way to the point that the Constitution itself has been sort of called into question. The very document which has guided our country for hundreds of years with the, con- with the concepts uh, which uh, concepts are embodied in it uh, concerning human rights, which have long since been considered uh, God-given inalienable rights. We, we hear that term, right, when we think of the Constitution, meaning that they aren't of human construction, but they are divinely ordained. In other words, in short, the government doesn't give us our rights. God does, right? That's been the view of, of, of America from the view of the Constitution, you know, all ever since our inception. Calling And calling that into question really breaks down unity in our country, right? And, and writing from prison... Paul is concerned about all the pressures that the Philippian church is facing and will face and, and how, how is that going to affect you know, their standing in the true gospel, right? So will they hold true to it or not is the question. And that is the shared problem of the church throughout history. We seem to always be sort of battling the world against these things. And so he's put himself, if you remember, uh, himself and Epaphroditus and Timothy forward as examples to follow, couched in this very Christ-centered letter. And I've enjoyed preaching through this, by the way. Really, I have. And unlike many of our politicians, right, who've not embodied the concepts of the Constitution in many ways, these men have proved themselves to have lived out what the Scriptures dictate as life-giving and true. They really have. 
And the call of standing firm in the gospel trails all throughout this letter. And it is what we find out is that it is extremely important. And so like the Constitution becoming suspect, if the Scriptures, the basic gospel, which define God's authoritative word in life, becomes suspect, then we've lost all hope for unity. And this is something, my friends, that you guys have to really think about. If you're just skating through your Christian life, coming to church, going to a community group, and then, and then, this is not the time anymore for that. I'm sorry. You've got to get real with your faith. This is the time for getting real, right? Sorry, I'm going off a little bit. But, um, but uh, Francis Chan once said, and I love this quote. I, uh, Steve sent me this. this uh, by the way, I've listened to almost everything. I've got to listen to one more. Um, sent me this sermon, and, and the guy quoted Francis Chan in there this week. It says, he says, when I read the Bible and I come across something uh, that I disagree, disagree with, I have to assume that I'm wrong and not Scripture. Now, amen, yeah, amen to that, right? Those are wise, wise, wise words, right? They are super wise words. I've, I'm, I've lost now. <laughs> and the church has fought for this unity in this manner throughout history. It really has. You know, we've, we've, this is, seems to be our thing that all the time. You know, and sometimes these challenges and outside pressures that we face as Christians bring with them an internal conflict, right? Which have, you know, it had been happening in the Philippian church, uh, both with people who had walked away from the church but still had influence over people in the church, over its members, right? Which was a negative thing that Paul addressed last week. But also, at least with two women inside the church, which he addresses next. And I hope I don't butcher their names. And if you know how to say them rightly, don't send me a text later saying you said that wrongly, because I know I probably did. But it says, I plead with Eudea and I plead with Syntyche, if I'm, that's right, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of, the co- of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Right? And we'll stop there for a second. We know that women had played a significant role in the beginning or the founding of the churches in Macedonia. Lydia was, uh, had, was Paul's first convert at that time in the Philippian church. There was a slave girl there who became the first one delivered of an evil spirit in that area. Acts 16 and 17 tell us that. Um, we don't know what the issue was between these two women, uh, nor do we know who this true companion is that Paul elicits help from uh, in, their, in their conflict. But we do know that these women were no weak women. They weren't just, you know, kind of soft, weak women. Not at all. Paul uses gladiatorial terminology to describe these women, right? In other words, he says they contended or they fought side by side with me. He's got high regard for these women. He's not putting them down. Um, they, They were active, devoted women of faith, which often puts a spiritual target on our backs. If you're actually walking and living out the gospel, man, you you do get a target on you. Because Satan will attack our relationships to bring about disunity in the church and hamstring the work of the gospel that we're trying to do, right? If he can't destroy us, he just keeps us arguing all the time, right? Um, and, And what we find is that tension is a daily fact when we truly decide to walk with Christ. Those who follow Christ well live with a tension that others just don't, and a certain unique tension, 
And the stress outside of the outside hostile culture out there serves to sort of beat us up a bit sometimes, right? And that often comes out in internal relationships in the church, either due to the stress that we endure or because we've begun to adopt its beliefs, which aren't commiserate with ours. Therefore, it eats away at our unity. And um, since beliefs and values and worldview and all that kind of stuff tend to shift away from the true gospel as we adopt these outside beliefs. And it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with our souls and it doesn't sit well with the church community because they, aren't, they, they don't see the world the same way. So our gaze is taken off of Jesus when that happens and it's placed solely on something else, right? You know, upon Christ's return, I believe all that will dissipate. Well, I know all it will, it will dissipate since his reign and his rule will be evident and clear to all. And his enemies won't have a voice there anymore. I had sad to say, right? But they will not have a voice there anymore. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Amen to that, right? Which just speaks of our living in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. The, the, the kingdom of God has already come. Christ ushered that in, and it's not yet fully come, right? So we're living in the in-between time of Christ's full reign on the earth. And it, it's sometimes difficult. Scripture, uh, scripture's clear that those who don't accept Jesus as he presents himself will be kept outside the kingdom doors when he returns. And I think we need to hear that. It's not often preached anymore in, you know, out there in the world, but I think we need to consider those things. Not to scare us to death, but get us to really understand what this does mean, the gospel means, right? You know, and living together now in community with the battle of the spiritual realm just kind of whirling all around us all the time that we can't necessarily totally see, it's sometimes a difficulty, it brings difficulty in our lives, making us to fall or making us distracted. But hopefully, we get back on track via the avenues that God has provided through His Scripture, through the Holy Spirit's leading, and through discipleship relationships within the church. Allowing people to speak into our lives and speaking into someone else's life as well. Now you can imagine being there that day as this is read aloud in church because that's what they would have done. They would have read this letter aloud and Paul was gentle and he was respectful to these women, but he did call them out, right? He just, he did, he did identify this and we can only imagine everybody in the room kind of like looking over at them, you know, when this is read aloud, it would have been kind of embarrassing, I think. But apparently, this was such a divide that it had reached his ears in a Roman prison, you know, far away, even to the point of suggesting third-party intervention, because it's important for the unity of the church and the witness of the church to address these things. You know, if we've been around church long enough for any amount of time, taking our faith seriously, not just sitting on the periphery, but actually getting involved and being in there, we become interdependent with others, don't we? Uh, allowing ourselves to, to be known, but also in engaging with knowing others really well. And to do so is to touch on the many wonderful aspect, aspects of each other. But it also, you know, 
forces us to touch the lingering darkness that is still in our souls that each one of us has yet to surrender to Jesus. Those things that still need changing about us, right? And the Spirit of God uses mature believers to sharpen us. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. everybody knows the verse. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Amen, right? Paul said already, if a person thinks differently than the Scriptures, right, that God will make it clear to them. So there is some solidity to all this stuff. There is absolute truth in the world. That we're to take on the mind of Christ as we grow into his likeness, right? But sometimes those deep-rooted flaws and sort of thinking of our character aren't so easily changed, and it comes out in conflict between us. And we often view that as bad. It's a bad thing that we have conflict. But, you know, possibly due to those moments, you know, these, these difficult moments, as the result, they're, they're, they're the result of the, the Spirit of God's work in our lives, with issues being brought to the surface through our fellowship and our interaction and bumping up together, conflict can be an opportunity for growth. It's a good thing sometimes. If done well, it's a good thing. <laughs> right sometimes it's not done so well and we have to be forgiving of that as well because not all of us are great at doing it right i'm i'm exceptionally well no i'm just kidding no i've i've you know i was said to somebody this week i said you know there are people in this world that hate my guts because i'm in the position i am because i've had to address things in their hearts and they didn't want to hear that and i didn't do it well sometimes right um now where am i <laughs> Likewise, you know, this this is what happens in the corporate uh, sort of fellowship of the church when those who don't actually hold unity with the true gospel message finally either are confronted with that and they have to either repent and be obedient to the Lord and come into alignment with that or they have to leave. You know, I've al- I've often said to people like, you know, people always say, well, can I come to your church if I don't really believe? I'm like, yes, you can come to this church if you don't believe. But at some point, the Holy Spirit is going gonna to confront your heart and you're going to have to make a decision. And most likely, if you make the decision not to follow Jesus, you're not going to be very comfortable in Christian fellowship for long. And that's just a, that's just a natural thing, a, a way of things. Because we align ourselves, we have unity under uh, thoughts, values, beliefs, things like that. And either way, that leaves the church with the ability to actually focus on our kingdom work that we should be doing, which is really Matthew 28, 18 through 20, taking the gospel out to all peoples and baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that we have commanded and making them disciples of Christ. You know, um, instead of being just sort of constantly distracted with simply defending the tenets of the faith, that's like such a waste of time. You know, like Paul says in other places, you know, don't just drink the milk of the word, eat the meat, right? Get in there, like grow up, right? You know, that kind of thing. But you know what? Concerning personal conflict, interpersonal conflict, what we find out is those who hide, you know, hide in privacy, those who don't want to talk, those who don't want to address the issues in a healthy way, often drift apart from others like our boat 
illustration last week, like a boat unmoored from a dock, right? And inch by inch, they drift out of fellowship. They, because of the fear that they have about this or the, the self-pity that they live in, or that maybe we even might even say the cowardice of looking at their own soul. Looking at your soul is a scary thing. I get that, right? But courage is going forward, even though it's scary, right? Paul brings this out right out in the light with these two women, since in a small church, it's obvious and unhealthy to avoid it, right? It's obviously happening and it's unhealthy to avoid it. We don't grow by circumventing our sin or circumventing our fear, but with the aid of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and healthy Christian community around us, we go through these things with faith that Jesus has something on the other side better than what we are currently experiencing. And that, and I said this to somebody this week, I'm 53 years old, and I have never had the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and, and, and how you guys lead me, fail me. I have gone through a lot, believe me. I have, you, you may not like me now, but man, you wouldn't have liked me 30 years ago, right? Like that, I've changed a lot, <laughs> right? The point is that we want to grow up as we grow old in the faith. Wouldn't it be great if the church, like everybody like 50, 60, 70, 80 years old and over, like just were just these old spiritual giants, but that's not always the case. Because people have not chosen to grow up as they grow old in the faith, right? Because sadly, many choose avoidance rather than faith. And in doing so, they hamstring not only themselves, but also the local church. Because we don't get all of you. They can't get past the issues God's calling them to address. So the witness of the church is diminished as a result. That's sad. Now, we don't know how these women responded. We really don't. But if they took Paul's uh, following imperatives to heart, we've already got one, I think, uh, maybe two, I forget how many I've done so far, but it would have gone well for them, right? Because these are imperatives which are a prescription for peace and well-being in the church, and they're applicable to all of us, obviously, but they're very relevant to these two women in conflict. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He repeats himself. Listen to that, right? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. How many people feel anxious this day and age right now? Almost everybody out there is, is, is living in some crazy degree of, of anxiety. You know, there's all this talk about shutting down again. Man, people are freaking out. Like, and they should in some sense, right? What are you going to do for your job? You know, what are you going to do? It's just anxiety kills us, right? And this is, he begins here with our second imperative, right? That Paul has urged us, uh, you know, if you think about what we've read so far, he has urged us numerous times in this letter to rejoice. Just rejoice, right? Anything repeated in scripture is worth listening to carefully, isn't it? Paul writes from prison with his life on the line, but chooses to rejoice nonetheless. He's got credibility. That he's got that credibility to call us to rejoice no matter what. No matter what, and without loopholes, rejoice always. Not rejoice when it's good. Not rejoice sometimes. Rejoice always preaching to myself right now, baby, right? I got to rejoice always. I don't always do that. 
in whatever situation you find yourself. Now, you could say your circumstances aren't joyous, but he's not calling you to rejoice in your circumstances. He's calling you to rejoice in the Lord, right? There's a big difference. Keeping your eyes focused on Jesus, at the very least, we have future hope, don't we? Right? Joy is the constant sort of orientation of the Christian life coming from what Jesus has done in the past, what he's doing right now, and and what he will do in the future. He doesn't fail us. Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest minds in history, wrote out a short testimony outlining his joy that he experienced when he first came to know Christ. And he had this copied and then sewn into every jacket that he wore just to remind himself of, of how to rejoice in Christ no matter what, right? He, he just, uh, and you can imagine, like every time he had a bad day, he just like opened his jacket and read and remembered what Christ has done for him. Nehemiah 8.10 tells us, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? Amen to that. David also leads us in Psalm 40. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth and a hymn of praise to our God. And we concur with 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, Now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And to do that, we hold firmly to the absolute truth of the gospel message, the reality of it. So his third imperative to us is to be gentle, just to be gentle. In 2 Corinthians, I'm not always gentle, and you guys know that, and I I have to work at that to be gentle, right? In 1 Corinthians 10.1, Paul appealed to them by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Jesus used the same word to to describe himself in Matthew 11.29. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And in Philippians 2.6, we remember that Paul said Jesus wasn't one that grasped a hold of his rights. And right here he reminds us that the Lord is near, which cause, all that causes us to rejoice. His nearness affects gentleness and puts anxiety to rest. When Jesus promises you in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the very end there that I'm with you all, to the very end always, that is a true reality. And it, it's promised over and over again, isn't it? So, Which brings up our fourth imperative, don't worry. (laughs) Don't be anxious about anything. I can can tell you, if we have the open mic later, by the way, be ready to share if you've got a story about what God's doing in your life right now uh, or has done in the past, whatever. I don't care when it happened. But, um, But I have had such faith experiences this past year. It has deepened my faith. Uh, just going through different things, just finding, you know, this whole worship leader thing, you know, Jackson, by the way, uh, Jackson and Jelly, kudos to them. They stepped in at the last minute this Thursday um, when, when we had a gap and want to applaud you guys for that. Good job. Um, but, but worry is such a big deal, right? And, and we need to grow in our faith, right? Paul can say this to us. 
since he lives in a situation which would normally bring about absolute fear of his life in prison, right? He remembers Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, you know, where Jesus identified worry as nothing less than just plain pagan, the non-Christian, right? Let's say it that way in verse 32 of that passage. You know, he compares us there to flowers and birds, right? And says, you know, they're, they're naturally provided all that they need by God. So are you not of more value than they, he says? Why wouldn't God take care of you? There's an old poem which says, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious humans, human beings rush about and worry so, said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think it must, that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me, right? In that passage, three times Jesus denounces worry. Therefore, I tell you, he says, do not be anxious or worry about your life. Verse 25. So do not be anxious or worry. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious or worry about tomorrow. Verse 34. Pretty serious he is about this, right? And Paul simply states it right here. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. That is not living in faith. In placing our feelings, our fears, our feelings, all those things, in placing those things under the management of the gospel truth of life, we hear the result of these choices when he says this. Uh, But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. By the way, if you lose your job tomorrow and you have a panic attack, I'm not judging you. As though, you know, don't walk away from here saying, well, he just says I got to buck up. You know, like, no, don't, like, don't take it that far. Maturity takes these things realizing that we're not always going to do it well. But this is our, our standard, our goal, the thing that we're shooting for. Okay, so don't go here from here feeling guilt-ridden about any of this stuff. Um, but there is a real correlation in normal life, right, I, I realize that some people have medical conditions where, where, you know, these things are quite difficult and it does take intervention in other ways. But in normal everyday life, there is a correlation between the peace that is available to us and in making the choice to believe or have faith in what Christ promises to us. It's a matter of obedience oftentimes in our lives, taking all that we face to the cross, not trying to manipulate it ourselves. Allowing the Spirit of God to have reign even in our internal thought life and our emotions. I can't explain this peace. None of us could. I can't invite one of you guys up here and say, can you explain the peace of God in your life? Can you explain to me while some guy in a prison in Rome can have peace still or why uh, Watchman Nee can, you know, have his life threatened or whatever and have still have peace? Or John Wesley, you know, seeing the Moravians on that ship, remember we talked about last week or the week before, how could they have peace when their lives are at, at, at stake, right? We don't understand this. It says right here that it transcends all understanding. It said before that it's inexpressible. We don't understand how to even express it. But I can attest to its truth in my life. I can. 
that when I choose faith, it goes better for me. It really does. When I choose, choose to rejoice, even in the face of difficulty, my internal peace is evident, and my wife and you guys and everybody else around me is a lot happier since I'm much less of a jerk, right? My wife's saying, yes, amen. Amen, Lord Jesus, she's saying. And this is relevant to our two sisters in Philippi. Since it's really hard to have constant conflict with someone when you have given it all to Jesus. It's really hard to keep it up. It brings with it an ease to the argument. It it gives you a sense of humor about yourself. It says, I don't have to get my way. It says, I can trust their heart and their mind to Jesus who can manage it much better than me. I can't manipulate them into how I want them to be. So Jesus will uh, resolve these things and not us. So thankfulness goes hand in hand with joy as a mark of the Christian life. The pagan life, the life without God, is marked by not being thankful at all to the Lord. We see that in Romans 1.21. It says there, For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see how your thinking and all this stuff goes together. Right there, Paul is talking about those who have access to knowing God, but they choose not to acknowledge him. And even worse, before this, he says that they suppress gospel truth. Why wouldn't they? They don't believe it. They don't hold to it. They're not experiencing it. But we can. Which tells us that when we choose joy and thankfulness, we're not just hearing the word, but we're actually putting it into practice. We're actually living it out. We're actually taking on the mind of Christ, reflecting him to others around us. And it's not just religiosity anymore. It's relationship. And that's really where we want to be. And so what we find is thankfulness is also the posture of grace. It's also a mark of the Christian. As it says in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen, right? If God knows... Like, think about this. If God knows what we go through, I know you've asked yourself this question. Everybody has. If God knows what we're going through, knows what we're going to face and everything about us, why do we have to bring our request before him? What good is prayer? It's It's an interaction. To do so is to cast all my care, to embrace my father, to cast all my care on him and to declare my absolute dependence on him in the world it teaches me something it's a matter of being known and knowing jesus well and as stated the end result is peace which extends beyond all rationality i can't i can't tell you i can only model it to you right Jesus promised in John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, gives do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The world, if you haven't noticed yet, I'm sure you have, but if you, if you live under a rock someplace and you haven't noticed, the, the world gives nothing but worry and empty promises of peace. Nothing but that. Worldly peace is tenuous at best. Think about all the peace accords that have been signed by countries all around the world for the history of the earth, right? And how many are actually kept? It doesn't seem to come to us easily. But Jesus' peace is internal peace, which doesn't depend on the outward circumstances, and it comes from within, and, it's, and it surpasses all understanding, and it's there no matter what. Nobody can rob you of it. It results in the protection of our hearts and minds in Christ. Isn't that important? Paul uses right here a military word more apt to saying it will garrison or it will surround your hearts and minds with military strength and protection. Amen. That's what I want. I want Jesus to protect me. The Philippians would have been very familiar with this language, you know, this imagery of the powerful Roman garrison, right? Standing between them and any enemy that's coming to invade them. And it was well known that no one was a match for the Roman garrison, right? Nobody could get through them. That's why they controlled the world at the time. So the imagery here is that in choosing thankfulness and choosing joy, that we hide behind the garrison of the Lord with absolute protection over our hearts and minds. If you are feeling like really down, really angry, really bitter, really confused, maybe you need to listen right now. Remember, you don't change the devil. The devil changes you. Don't even try. You don't change the devil. The devil changes you. And every time you give him control of your thinking, you give up your thankfulness and your joy and your peace to something that is absolutely going to ravage you and the relationships around you. It's a, bre- it's a breach in the ranks of the garrison to give that power to Satan. It's like you walking through those line of soldiers saying, excuse me, guys, you know, I don't need your help, and then just willingly giving yourselves to the enemy. It's a dumb decision. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is. And by the way, you young guys in junior high school, high school, wherever you guys are in college, man, I kudos to you. You, you are facing it. You know, you are facing it. And I pray for you guys because, man, you are up against it as Christians in wherever you are. Amen. Amen to you guys. Let's give them a little applause. You know, when I was in Indonesia with my children, they were really little, right? Oh, so cute, right? I loved having little kids. They were fun, right? And whenever I went into a new situation, we would go into a village or whatever, my kids would have to hide behind me. Or and even like, you know, little Maddie, she was like this tall, you know, she'd hide right between my legs and just hang on to one and like look out. Because people would just swarm them. They, you know, they'd never seen, you know, these kids from America. They just swarm. They wanted to pinch their cheeks and pick them up. My kids were scared to death. And they would hide. And, you know, I looked bigger than life. I knew it. I, it's the only time I looked big, right? The, I looked bigger than life to my children. It, it, you know, they felt very safe hiding in between my legs or behind me, right? 
And I think this is the image that we can leave with here today. As we, as we hide behind Christ, we hide in peace, we hide in joy and thankfulness and safety of our minds and hearts. He, he takes care of us. You know, I was going to go through verses 8 and 9 as well today, but I think I'll save that for next week. But today, Paul leaves us with five good, healthy imperatives. He basically says, choose to stand firm in gospel truth. Choose to stand firm in Christ. Choose to rejoice always. Choose to be gentle. Choose not to be anxious. And choose also to bring all of your requests to God in prayer. Those are five really good things. These are the efforts, right? These are the efforts or the choices that you can make in working out your salvation as Paul puts it, right? You remember he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You can choose these five things and it will affect your soul in great ways. It really will. Remember, as Dallas Willard always said, you can't earn your salvation. We know that. You cannot earn your salvation. That is by grace through faith, right? That is by what Jesus did. But you can make effort in growing deeper in your walk with Christ. And these are the efforts which makes uh, uh, which uh, we, we make towards maturity in Jesus. These are the efforts that we make so that we can grow up as we grow old. Good advice from Paul. In all the pressures that we face in culture and in conflict, if followed well, these imperatives will guard our hearts and minds in Christ as individuals and it will keep the unity of the church and we can just do kingdom work that we're called to do. I'm going to pray. Somebody's going to come up to, to do the prayer announcement and then we're going to leave. Maybe maybe you guys can do like just background music while people aren't. And... Um, we're going to leave the mic open. We want to hear from you. What's God been doing in you? What, what, what has he been challenging you with? What, how have you been growing in your faith? Whatever. Whatever you want to share. Uh, try to keep it brief. Don't, don't get up here and talk for 15 minutes, but maybe one to three minutes at the most, you know, that kind of thing. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for what you've said to us. We pray that that would linger and stick with us above and beyond what Jason says. We pray that your spirit would convict our hearts where it needs joyous conviction. And we pray that in these five things, we can step up to bat really, really well and follow you into the future. Father, I pray that you would suck the anxiety out of our lives, that you would, you would suck that out and you would refill it with joy and thankfulness and obedience. We love you so much, and we just want to grow up as we grow old in our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.